This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Hello, I'm Kat Sarkis, bookseller at Barnes & Noble. Today, we are joined by the brilliant Alex E. Harrow. Alex is the best-selling author of The 10,000 Doors of January, The Once and Future Witches, various short fiction, including A Spindle Splintered and A Mirror Mended, a duology of fractured fables, and now Starling House. Her work has won a Hugo and British Fantasy Award and been shortlisted for the Nebula, World History, Locus, and Southern Book Prize. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. I love this podcast so much. Love it. So we'll go down memory lane a little bit. So with the 10,000 Doors of January, you gifted us this gorgeous sort of portal fantasy. Uh, We've got our witchy tales covered with the Once and Future Witches, Fractured Fairy Tales with a spindle splintered and a mirror mended, and now a Southern Gothic that sort of swirls with unseen monsters in a cursed town. And that's just the novels and novellas. You've given us many fantastical love letters to the written word. So first I'll say thank you, as I know your stories have captured so many readers. And then I have to ask, what led you to Opal, Jasper, Arthur, and Starling House? Oh, thank you so much. First of all, congratulations on saying a spindle splintered and a mirror <laughs> twice. It's almost impossible. <laughs> Which I didn't know. I was like, alliteration, it's very fairy tale. You know, like you're you're calling back to oral traditions. I love that. And then I was on podcasts and I was like, this is a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, well, when a spindle splintered came out, I was like, I'll just do that thing where authors refer to it by the acronym. And mm. then I was like, a spindle splintered and you can't do that actually (laughs) (laughs) so sterling house kind of has a bunch of different origin points but i think the the truest one is that i realized at some point that i'd written a bunch of books and stories about people running away and leaving Mm -hmm. in kind of a traditional like hero's journey sense of like you have to leave home and depart and go off on an adventure and often they were running away from places that either literally were or looked a lot like rural kentucky where I am from and where I grew up and where I was living when I wrote all these things. So maybe a little bit of wistfulness there. And I think it's interesting that um, it was only once we had decided to leave. So me and my family two years ago moved to Charlottesville, Virginia, where we are now, that I could kind of conceive of Starling House, which is very much a book about staying. It's sort of, it's my Kentucky book and my book about home. And I kind of put everything in this box of everything that I kind of really miss about Kentucky and love about it and everything that is the reason I ran um, Mm -hmm. all kind of in one thing. And the only real vehicle that is equipped genre wise to tell that story to kind of hold both these like almost romance elements and horror elements and this sense of yearning and loss. That's Southern Gothic. That's already built there. So I just kind of climbed aboard. (laughs) Because Starling House kind of takes place in modern Kentucky. Um, making this novel the closest to home. Did it become more personal because of that setting? Yeah, it definitely did. There's a ton of stuff that I just stole straight out of my own family history, um, which I cannot (laughs) reveal in public podcast. Um, You know, things that happened in my childhood and like even the details of like the texture of living there. Like I worked at Tractor Supply. I was a cashier for Mm. months. I didn't live in Muhlenberg County. It's set in Muhlenberg County. Um, I lived in Allen County and then Grayson County and then Madison County. And if you're a Kentuckian, every place is referred to only by its county. (laughs) The towns are too small. So I've lived all over and I have family all over. But it was definitely kind of like pulling all of that personal stuff and still trying to weave it into 
something that wasn't too navel gazy, but was still like a narrative with structure and, you know, kind of a fairy tale retelling also. <laughs> yes. No, and it is thinking back and, and and you know, with with obviously with with Ten Thousand Doors of January and that and, you know, with Once in Future Witches, that's where it was it did feel more historical. This was just like, oh, this is happening now. And this could be, yes, it's taking place in Kentucky, but it could take place in a hundred different towns or counties, if you will, <laughs> across across the states, which I think is just, and I kind of love that you how you just, you know, and I'm sure it's not easy, but it seems very seamless, you know, just kind of jumping around these different fantastical genres. So the story does have a bit of a twist on the haunted house trope. I would say more maybe a sentient house that you don't really want to make angry. What is it about a house, um, a home, if you will, that sort of gets us every time? Why are we sort of collectively drawn to these haunted, if you will, haunted house stories. I just think it's, I mean, I've always loved a good house book, even though I I wouldn't have like seen that as a category Mm -hmm. or anything. But every time like a house is sort of alive, I'm like, oh, my buddy, my guy, I love to see you. Um, (laughs) uh, And I just, I think it's really fascinating to see how the sentient house has functioned in different genres. It plays Mm -hmm. a very, very different role. So in horror, it's kind of the inversion of what a home is supposed to be, which is, I yeah. think, what horror does a lot. Like, a, that's why I think evil and terrifying mothers or evil and terrifying children are such a common thing, because that's the opposite of what they are supposed to fulfill. So a yes. house is supposed to be a home. It's supposed to be safe. It's supposed to protect you. And when it turns on you, it's a very, like, existentially upsetting thing. But then in children's literature and in fairy tales, a house that is alive is more often fulfilling it's kind of an exaggeration of that role of caretaker and safe place and home, sometimes a, a parent substitute. And I got stuck in the middle of those two houses. <laughs> in this book. And I think it's ultimately because that's just the the kind of two things I hold in my head simultaneously about my home is that it feels like a place I love that is safe for me that I always want to go back to. But I know too much about it. And I recognize it as a um, sometimes a violent space, a scary space, something that is not safe for everyone. And so that is why you ended up with this kind of like, is this house haunted or is it kind of a buddy? I'm not sure. And that's where I'm at. <laughs> yes. No. And that, I think you dare very much. Feel, I feel like I've seen people be like, oh, it's like a haunted house. I'm like, uh, I like to me. Yeah, it was like, it's like a, it's like a sentient, it's like a cat. It's like, it depends you keep on it. who you are, you know, <laughs> yes. maybe it doesn't like you. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I was kind of like. I'm like, yeah, it's, you know, obviously it love it likes opal you know and it like she cares for it and it's it's happy but then on the other end you know it, if it's not being cared for and then it has its moods it has its swings and yes it it was it was so interesting that the the house really is a character in the story and speaking of stories you really love to also write stories within stories basically fully fleshed out books within books um <laughs> and but more than that you explore, you know, mythology. And what I really love is like the oral history and community. Um, So what comes first for you? Is it the central story or the many stories that it's built on? No, I usually, so far I've started always with the central story. um, And that at a certain point, I feel like... (laughs) I have burdened myself with far too much like history that I need to be a part to understand the central story, to make sense of it and to contextualize it. I find myself just needing whole other books that don't exist, pulling them in. This one kind of came very early with that idea in part because I was like talking to my family and reading histories 
of Muhlenberg County and of the space, they're all so conflicting. Mm-hmm. And I think that is largely what history is. Like, I think we have this quest for like an objective reality, but in in truth, history is just sort of these layered narratives that often argue with each other. And you're trying to weave them into some like, not even a clear picture, but like a map of the truth. And I especially feel that way about the Southern Gothic, which I read a bunch of them to kind of prep for reading this just tonally. And when you read that genre, depending on who is writing them, they're totally very different. There's yes. this sense of nostalgia and yearning that comes from certain authors. I think we all know who they are. And there's a sense of <laughs> horror and fear and pain that is embedded in them. And and they each partake of the other and all that from other perspectives. And And so, like, I wanted to write a story that kind of did not exclude any of those experiences. And the only way to do that when you have a singular main character who is narrating is to kind of pull in other stories and to try. And so there's like a wiki page version of the story of the Darling House in here. (laughs) I love that there's literally, um, and I have this copy, which is like totally trashed because this was, and this is what I got. And it actually has even the early one. Yes, this is the (laughs) early one. Different title. Well, not slightly different title. Yeah. Um, I love, I honestly, for me, I love reading it uncorrected. I loved, and then like kind of, and then going back and, and seeing, you know, Know, if there were any changes or like, there were there definitely yes. were <laughs> this is where i'm starting from and this is where and because i honestly couldn't wait to get my mitts on it um and i was just like give me whatever you have <laughs> like and this was it um but i remember like getting to the point where you literally have and i'm trying to find them now footnotes and i was like there's footnotes here with numbers <laughs> like when was the last time i read a book with footnotes and it's just wild um that it's like and you almost you know you create this world where as you're kind of reading along and then, you know, you go to these footnotes of these other books and and references and, but then some of them are true. Like you reference like a John Pine song. And I was like, okay, well, that's true. And then, then you're <laughs> like, you mess with us in a way where I'm like, well, what's true? Like, which of these footnotes is of an actual book or an actual reference, you know, or a song or, you know, whatnot. Um, and then what's completely been fabricated. And it does, it makes you I would say it makes the reading experience much more enjoyable. It kind of, you know, you go down these ridiculous rabbit holes. Trying yeah, to I'm sorry of- for anyone Googling. About half of it's real. <laughs> and the other half of it is actually real, but exaggerated, you know. So, like, there was at one point a tuberculosis ward in Mammoth Cave, Kentucky, which is an insane thing. It is not, you know, now currently haunted, but, like, there's little seeds of things um, throughout. That John Prine song, see, that's the other way you could tell the origin point of this book is very much with the John Prine. Yep. I have by now seen enough blank faces to realize that he is perhaps not the household <laughs> name that I, a Western Kentuckian, thought he was. But for those of you who did not grow up listening to John Prine, arguably his first hit is a song called Paradise. Mm-hmm. It came out in 1971 on his debut album. And it is, he is not actually from Kentucky, but both his parents were. They are from Paradise, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, you see how I named it Eden in the book? You see yep. how clever we are? There we go. It's all coming around. <laughs> Which is a real town in Muhlenberg County on the Green River. And the song tells the story of what happened to it when in 1964, Peabody Coal arrived and opened a gigantic strip mining operation, including what was then the largest steam shovel ever, ever built. It was 20 stories high. This is an insane machine. And they strip mined 50,000 acres of Muhlenberg County, and they also built a coal-fired power plant, which was at the time the largest coal-fired power plant. So it was this massive undertaking. Within, I think by 1969, they had the TVA had been forced to buy out and relocate all 800 people who lived in the town of Paradise 
because it was so unbelievably toxic to exist there. Um, which I always think is impressive by 1969 standards. Like, you know, it couldn't have been high. No, <laughs> and you know that probably at that point it was already past what? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, People had been leaving voluntarily because yes. it was just like you couldn't survive there. The amount of fly ash in the air was apparently so bad that if you hung laundry out to dry, it would turn black. So it's just like the disgusting place to live. And so they relocated the entire town and bulldozed it. And all that is left now of paradise is a cemetery. And so his song is sort of like a folk ecological fable mm -hmm. it's a familiar narrative um and like i just grew up knowing that story like we were next door my dad rode up in that steam shovel when he was a kid so like these stories are very very like known to me i kind of thought more universally than they are <laughs> and so that kind of became like i knew i didn't want to set it in an actual kentucky town but uh -huh. i could invent eden as like almost like what if paradise had survived what would yeah. it be like now and what yeah. kind of things would haunt it no. And you do, I mean, you have the machine and like the gravely and like, so it is, I mean, it's, um, if you see that when you read the book, I'm hoping that the footnote, I'm assuming the footnote made it to the final, to the final, uh, final edit. Yeah. And, and it does. I mean, you look it up. I, I did know, uh, who John Prine was. I was, I grew up in an interesting household. Uh, my dad was very British, but also loved country music. And so, <laughs> so we had, um, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of classical, a little bit of country. Um, so I was kind of, I, I guess in, in a way, even though I grew up in New York, uh, definitely had sort of, you know, a varied, uh, musical, musical upbringing, but I, you know, not familiar with every song was familiar with that one. And then it kind of was like, oh yeah. And then like, you, you know, obviously in the context of the book, you start to, yeah, pull the, pull, pull the sort of those inspirations that you may have had, but really it's, um, it's so fun. And I love, I mean, you've done this, uh, you know, in your other, in your other books too, I think to this, this, I think the the footnotes might be in the, uh, I'm pretty sure that's a, that's a new thing. That's a, <laughs> if I'm remembering correctly, don't remember footnotes. And um, I got, I was allowed to keep a few footnotes in 10,000 doors, but only in the book within the book. So there's yes. very few total. Yes, and I had to fight for this. as much, but no, it was really, it does. It makes you you know, and it kind of like, you know, even what you were saying before about history is sort of the objective, you know, and in, in, in terms of what, um, who's telling that story and who's reading and, you know, and who, and then also who's reading it and what are you taking up from it and adding in your own personal experiences. So I just think that was such a treat being able to sort of like go, go through that, uh, go through those stories. And that kind of brings me, I guess, to uh, the Underland. And I think for myself, I very much wish uh, that I had a book like The Underland as a child. I think that maybe not every kid, but for me, um, I think I would have definitely gravitated towards it. Um, and I love to look back at like my favorite tales and books as a child and how that sort of shaped my personality and general outlook uh, on the world. I also love that you say you have semi-feral kids. <laughs> I too have semi-feral children. And I often think about the stories that I read them and then what they'll remember, what's sort of stretching their imaginations. So do you have any particular tales or stories that you loved as a kid that you feel kind of shaped like your your underlands or new favorites that you're sort of passing on uh, to your kids now? I was definitely very much a book kid in a book household. So like I read a ton of stuff, much of it wildly inappropriate, but it is having the experience of having kids and reading out loud to them. It is consistently amazing to me which ones they latch on to. And they are not always the sweetest or the funniest or the warmest. Now, admittedly, I do have one kid. My older son is very um, sweet. He loves a cute thing. And then I have one spooky little haunted child. And the spooky little haunted child just loves 
you know, ghosts, skeletons, terrifying things. He just gravitates toward them. And I just think that's kind of true of children in general. I wrote my thesis, my master's thesis on British children's literature at the turn of the 20th century and and kind of empire and representations of colonial spaces. Anyway, point is I read a ton of Victorian children's literature (laughs) and then Edwardian children's literature. A lot of what uh, lingered and stuck culturally is not what is like morally best. And it, it is not the kinds of things that are trying to teach children how to be good little citizens. The mm-hmm. things that linger are the things that have like a little bit of darkness and wildness to them. Because I think yes. that's kind of how kids are. Even something as like seemingly wholesome as where the wild things are much later on. Like my children love that. I love that. I think it is rhythmically perfect as a piece of writing. And yes. I also think it has this little edge of genuine strangeness and danger. And so just like thinking about Victorian moralism in children's literature and thinking about the many waves of moralism and puritanical things that like we're going through another period of it right now where yeah. people are trying to cleanse children's literature of anything different, scary, dangerous, adult. And I think that's so bad and wrong, both on many levels, but yes. also on the level of what children like. Yeah. <laughs> like, what draws them to things or like um, a series of unfortunate events, right? That mm-hmm. went crazy when I was like a kid and and it, it's so dark and bleak. And every kid was like, yes, orphans, multiple murders. Yeah. I'm all about it. <laughs> it's true. And I think about the books and the and movies and TV shows and everything that I was gravitated for. And sometimes when I think back, I often, I guess I assign like an age that's much older than I actually was because in my head, I'm like, oh, I couldn't have possibly been X age reading this. And then I'm like, oh no, I was, <laughs> you know? And again, yeah. it's just, it is that like slightly macabre. I think we're just really, I mean, kids are just naturally naturally curious creatures and i think honestly it's it's to your, like you were saying in terms of this purge in a way it's it's the often the adults that are sort of you know curbing that or sort of you know uh, eradicating that that natural curiosity and it's not and i and i remember even you know my son like early on you know asking me those morbid questions and you like pause cuz you're like oh my god like this answer could could ruin you like, i don't know how do i give you like do I give you the fairy tale answer or do I give you the real answer or some combination of the two? Hope I'm not going to scar you. <laughs> like, hope I'm not going to Yeah, but those anxieties you. are largely adult ones. They're yeah, not, I, think I mean, I think that's genuinely true. And I, like, both of my kids recently got very, very, very obsessed with Greek myths, which I went through that phase. Yep. Whomst Among Us was not a Greek mythology yes. kid. But I realized at a certain point that like, as they're they're like listening to a podcast of them, they're reading picture book versions, they're just in so deep. And they're all so violent and horrifying yeah. and monstrous <laughs> and vengeful. There's all this stuff. But I realized like that's some of the only spaces where you run into that level of intensity and in storytelling as a child. So I was like, oh, is that why we're all like, whoa. Yeah. Hera cursed his <laughs> girlfriend's son. That's yep. insane. Like. But yeah. there's a level of drama that they don't really have access to in a lot of their narratives. And so I'm like, huh, I wonder if that's why it's like sparking something in your weird little mammal brain. Like it's true. No, and I think that there is, yeah, that excitement. And I I yeah, and I think you I think I always say with kids, I think that we don't give them enough credit for what they're able to understand. And I think that the things that they are not they're not able to understand, they just sort of like move on. Are like, fine. 
Yeah, it's like fine. they don't, like they're not thinking about it. Like we're thinking about it. They're not thinking about it. <laughs> They've already moved on. But no, I loved, um, I love the idea that you created this sort of like weird and terrifying children's book that sort of then becomes this has this like cult following and then it actually we realize it is real and terrifying you know like how how it was done no spoilers that sort of like whole book within a book I just loved and I know you you know and then again like the notes and everything else and I just uh yeah part of me is like so you're gonna make the underline like so that's gonna come <laughs> yeah to like recall that. me if you'd like this horrible picture book <laughs> I'm like, so can we have this? Because I feel like you've already written it. Like it's already like it's it's so detailed. I will say not to brag, but huge brag. Um, the final finished copy has five full page illustrations from Ravina Kai, and they're very, very, very beautiful. And beautiful. what I would imagine the illustrations, like they're black and white, they're pencil, they're they're just so good. It's just, and so yeah, so that's what I'm. That's all I'm saying. I'm just gonna put, put it out there. You know, remember manifest, manifest things. So <laughs> <laughs> the next generation will have, will actually have the Underland. Not that there's plenty of books, and then uh, you like, guys can ban it from school libraries. I will. <laughs> all come full circle, just like that, just like the actual book. But yeah, it, it did. It did make me kind of think of, and yeah, one of them was where the wild things are. Not that I think that that was like on the same, but it it, it does sort of have that really can be slightly terrifying if you actually start to ask questions about you know, the, the book and the child's imagination and what the child was going through and why they sort of that, that escapism, um, all things that as adults we deal with today and just, you know, on a different level. But so, yeah, I thought that was just love it. So let's go to characters. I loved your character. I love all your characters, particularly, particularly this book. Um, I think I laughed out loud on several occasions. <laughs> um, so many of your characters, and obviously including those, like I was saying, in Starling House, um, they're sort of in exile in a way, searching for a place of their own, their identity, their own meaning of home. So what draws you back to these themes? And then I have a side question. Who gets the Starling House spinoff? <laughs> I mean, I can't write sequels. I did it one time and I was like, whoo, that's it. I just found out something about myself. I realized in writing this that it kind of wasn't working as a particular type of small town book mm -hmm. because the characters are in many ways on the outside, on the fringes of that small town. So like in, if you think of a small town book, it's like the whole community is a character. You yeah. know everyone. Everyone knows you. Everyone knows their family histories. And and there's like this enmeshment, um, which even though I am from small town Kentucky, I kind of never fully experienced like my family was sort of like politically weird and we didn't go to church and my parents kept off and on going to grad school. And so like there was always like this distance, you know, like yeah. of not quite being a part of the community. Um, you know, I think it was in like first grade when my classmates tried to do an exorcism on me because I was talking about too many Greek myths. <laughs> um, which are, to be fair, very upsetting to the first graders of Alberton, Kentucky. Um, yeah, I, I could see that. So I ended up writing the town as a snow globe that you're on the outside of it. Um, and I, because that's what I knew how to write, where you like kind of know everybody, but you're not tight. You're not in the yeah. inner circle ever. And obviously that's just my own self. So that's my own <laughs> myopic perspective. <laughs> but then within that, they have their own community. I mean, like Opal, then, you know, she, not again, not going to do too many spoilers, but she does have, I mean, I think whether she realizes or not, she has a community that I think yeah, there's it's, always sort of, more people outside the snow globe than you realize. Than you realize, exactly. <laughs> like, I think, again, and I maybe you're, you know, I think often you can be sometimes blind to it because, again, you're in your own space. 
maybe you're just feeling very righteous or feeling like you said, just feeling like that exile, feeling like that outsider. And I, I often feel like it's always there's, you know, what's right in front of you. Is that what is what you can't like you're, you know, yeah. too close to and the trees I, to see the forest. I think we have like a something of a Western cultural obsession with like the tough loner character. Mm. I love a tough loner. But I think in reality, there's probably like three of them. Like there's not that many people who genuinely exist and get by and survive in isolation. Like I just don't think that's how it works. Um, And it hasn't been my own experience. Like I have lived at or below the poverty line for most of my adult life until publishing. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And the and survival in those spaces is not something you do alone ever yeah no but and it, it is i think and then you know when you when you realize that that can you know you have that community or again like whether it be the misfits the people outside the snow globe uh, the people that you didn't realize were there all along it's just kind of a really satisfying thing and i think that that's another thing i really love about your books i feel like they all I'm not going to give away endings but you know, and whether you agree with, you know, and I, I think that's always a thing that I love to 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 talk about, you know, how it's, how do you wrestle with like the ending that you know readers want versus the ending that you know the book needs your characters. But I feel like you always are kind of like, yeah, that was, that's what had, like, that's what had to happen. Like, <laughs> I mean, of- so far, the only thing that has not changed in any draft of any book is I know the first scene and I know the last scene. And I haven't been, I'm sure there will, the next book I write, I've just hexed myself and I'll be like, oh, this is so wrong. <laughs> but like, and if it doesn't work, it means I've messed something up in the middle. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. the rest of things have to change because what I was trying to write about was like this last like picture were, of the people. This was where you were going. Like That's this where was I was where supposed to be going. Stop. And if it yeah. feels weird, that's on me. Like, <laughs> like how you're so honest like it's my fault <laughs> i'll take the blame <laughs> getting kind of into you know your your process so you you've written you know you have uh, many short stories many are they're available in in uh anthologies tour.com uh, different different places so you've written um so many short stories but then you know versus so short stories versus uh novellas versus novels so what would you say and since you've written them all what are sort of the highs and lows of writing each of those mediums? I mean, I still maybe think my favorite things to write are short stories, just uh-huh. because the like balance of time invested to reward of having finished something is just great. I love yeah. that for me. <laughs> and <laughs> I see that entire, instant it's, reward. Yeah, it's so great. And yeah. like the whole publishing, you know, like publishing is very slow. I finished and turned in Starling House in the version that you read in that yep. first one two full years ago. At this yep. point. So, like, it takes a while. But with the short fiction, it's all very much more condensed and you can sort of write things and be receiving feedback on them and readers so much faster that I find that really fun. And I find it more possible to experiment with things that I maybe could not invest a full year or two of my writing life into or I couldn't sustain these things tonally. You can, like, take risks in ways that I think are just really, really fun and very... Like, I'm the least likely to get bored when writing short fiction. However, there are just ideas that can't work on that level. Mm-hmm. Um, and when there's kind of more serious and particularly more personal themes that I want to, like, get all the messy pieces of, it has to be book length. And You, you want to get those really footnotes love, in. You yeah, want- <laughs> exactly. You can't be doing footnotes in a short. Now, I have done one. I did get footnotes <laughs> in one short story. Most of the time they stop me. But I think that's what's so fun about 
sci-fi and fantasy as a genre is that like it has the space for any scale of idea you have like you don't have to have an idea and be like ah it doesn't feel like it's enough for a novel because there's the entire novella market and it's really fun to work in yeah and I think you know and I I will say obviously for maybe not obviously for me like fantasy science fiction mostly fantasy is like a safe space and I think it is because like anything goes in, in, in a way and like you can make anything work and I kind of love my favorites are like you know when you when you start a story and you're like how is this gonna you know like where, where is this going and then by the end you're like I want to crawl inside this world and never leave and so I think that it, it is a, to me like a very special genre and then I, I kind of love to see now you know there's so many different spin-offs from that you know and, and in terms of like you know you can even this one it's like a southern gothic fantasy you know and like well, you have your witchy fantasies you have your cozy fantasies you have your romanticies i mean there's yeah. there's yeah, like nothing. i love it i love in general i'm anti-genre not anti-genre but I, I i'm not a cop about borders between them and i love to see just the bleeding through of like romance writers who are writing fantasy books yeah. now fantasy writers who were like maybe i'll just do a straight up romance i think that's fantastic more of that like, yes I that. and i think it does yeah it's just I guess to your, you were saying like, it's like genre. I kind of look at them all like genre fiction, like all it's basically like permitting yourself to play and to just expand and kind of not worry about like, not worry about parameters of reality and just kind of like, this is, this is how we're going to tell our Which, story. I mean, I even think like, I, I tend to do that sort of like literary or or realistic fiction and genre divide too in Broadway. But I also like, I love it when those two begin to mix um so much <laughs> yes and i think that that's something that i think that we're seeing a lot of and i and that's kind of a, you know i always love to say you know like i think people look you know, think about fantasy writing where they kind of like oh it's like an, it's an escapism i'm like well all books are escape like all but fiction. i also am like oh that's a crazy way of saying you've never read octavia butler interesting right? that's so right? cool <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of yeah to me i think that um i think i, I yeah when people are you know mention talks about literary fiction i'm like you know, and how that's like its its own thing. And I'm, I keep on, I feel like, no, the literary merit or like the, how it's written in the prose and in, in terms of, or how they talk about how they use their metaphors and whatnot, like that, that can be played, like that's can be placed into any story, like and any, any so concept. So many novels that I love that are always on literary shelves are using genre elements yes. to their advantage. You know, like the best Southern Gothic ever written, arguably is Beloved. That is also a haunted house story. Like that is a ghost story. It has huge horror elements yes, on purpose are. used to incredible effect. Um, yep. And so like the divisions are always a little bit silly, always yeah. have more to do with like marketing and also with people's identity making of yes. like what kind of reader they are than they yes. do about art making and books. <laughs> no. And I think that it's part of, I feel like our job is kind of to like break those barriers and like you will like just try this book you will like this or like sometimes I love to like throw you know like oh you like this literary book and then throw like a fantasy at them and then watch their face sort of be like no (laughs) you're like no yes like this is this is what you need to read not to be greedy as you've just given us uh, an amazing new novel but I have to ask just because I am greedy what is next for you so I realize (laughs) what I'm also (laughs) doing as I write is kind of going through my own like eras of stuff that was formative to me when I was a kid. Like I don't, do we ever really escape what we were obsessed with when we were 11? I don't really think so. And for me, there's a huge section of my pie chart that is sort of the 
medieval-esque lady knight YA period. Mm. So like Tamora Pierce, Robin McKinley, like the blue sword was very, very important to me. The hero on the ground, very, very important to me. And so it's my lady knight book. Actually, I wrote a short story as like a test of the idea called The Six Deaths of the Saint. I was and actually, so, just, I, didn't wanna, yeah. I wasn't going to make assumptions, but I was like, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, no, I had I had the book outlined and ready to go. And I was like, let me see if I can totally do yeah. secondary world fantasy. And so that was like my, the, that's actually most of the book in, in a tiny version. I'm expanding two thirds of the way through the novel version of that right now. That is fabulous. And I'm sure many people will be very, very excited <laughs> having read that short story. It is wonderful. And yeah, I think that it, it's, it's interesting how you were saying like that, you know, you can play, you can take those chances in short story. And then to know that like, if it, how it feels, like if, if it feels unfinished, there's always something else. There's always more. There's always more words, um, always more words to play with. And because I'm always looking for book recommendations from brilliant women, uh, and I know you love to shout uh, shout out books on your Instagram, which I love, um, recommendations. <laughs> I feel like it's a modern way to sort of like shout from the rooftops, if you will. <laughs> what are you reading now? Or uh, what was the last book that you just couldn't shake, couldn't stop talking about? Um, one, a couple of them that I've been very obsessed with lately. <laughs> <laughs> um, I read the sequel to Shelley Parker Chan's She Who Became the Sun. Yep. The sequel is He Who Drowned the World. And it's great. It's yeah. just, I, I like, I really, really, really liked She Who Became the Sun. But I feel like He Who Drowned the World is like all those things, but more so. It's amplified. The drama is just at a 12 at mm -hmm. all times. Um, and I just thought it was, it worked on like every level for me as a historical novel, as kind of a palace intrigue. Um, Game of Thronesy kind of battle for power, um, yeah, yeah. and as an exploration of gender and identity, I just thought it was—it's just really, really smart and really good. I also read a literary novel that everyone was talking about, and I was like, to the point where I was like, kind of annoyed, where I was like, oh, that it's not even that good. Uh, <laughs> and then it was so good, <laughs> I have like bought like, two copies. Why? <laughs> I know. I was just like, oh my god, everyone was right. It's um tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Oh. It's amazing. It's so good. Um, and I just, I'm obsessed with it structurally, like on a craft level. Yes. Um, I feel like it is part of some of my favorite contemporary lit. I, I feel like I have, I'm the person with like a string board behind me, but I feel like it is in a lot of ways, kind of more of a 19th century social novel. Like there's, yes. there's these older ways of writing where you have a very authoritative narrator. Um, it's almost omniscient. And the concern is so much with contextualizing people in their social class mm -hmm. and race and space in ways that I think is so, so, so smart um, and is actually kind of throwback literature that I just, I love. <laughs> I, yes, I will say I also loved it. And it was the first, it was, I hadn't read a book in a long time where I actually had to, and and I don't want to give any spoilers away, but you'll know what I'm talking about with a certain chapter or a certain part where I like felt like I couldn't go on like I remember like putting the book down and being like I need space <laughs> like I was yeah. like I need like to grieve and to like you know move on in a way like move on and then I was like okay I'll come back to it and I remember like the, obviously the whole time it was like haunting me like I knew I I knew I was gonna pick it up but it was so it was like the book had like like hurt me in a way and I was mm -hmm. like I haven't had that that reaction to a book in a long time and yet the way it's written I feel like I absolutely have that experience, but it 
it doesn't leave you with no. a feeling of it being a tragedy. No, it no. is. And I yes. think that's a really good trick to pull. I think it has to do with the duration of the book that comes after yes. that event. Um, yes. Anyway, it's great. And anything, honestly, for me, anything that references Shakespeare, I'm I'm just kind of like a yeah. like a sucker for it. Like I like if I see a Shakespeare reference, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna read that. <laughs> Whether it be good, yeah. good, bad, or otherwise, like I'm at least gonna give it a chance. Well, Alex, thank you again. I'm gonna say thank you for sort of the, the fire and rage, the hope and wonder for giving us all a moment uh, to believe in magic, uh, if you will. Uh, this has been a real treat. Uh, Starling House is out now. Thank you so, so much. This was great. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.